things are moving quickly, and when I recorded this podcast just on Thursday morning, it hadn't been reported yet that September 20th would be Election Day, with the call coming on Sunday. So gird yourself. Hello, everybody. Eric Grenier here, and welcome to the seventh episode of The Writ Podcast. Is this going to be the last pre-federal election podcast for reals this time? Well, we'll just have to wait and see. Current expectation is that the call will come at some point on the weekend, likely Sunday, but we'll see what will actually happen. But it is a pretty safe prediction to say that an election is coming, especially when you see all the signs of it. There's been lots of announcements done by the government, uh, some appointments that have been made that they won't be able to make once the election gets going. And we've also seen lots of movement on the candidate side. Um, There's been a number of incumbents that have stepped down over the last few days, and the replacements have been named pretty quickly, a lot more quickly than you would need to if an election wasn't happening in a few days. We had three liberal MPs who announced they were stepping down just this week. Uh, The number is now 27 MPs in all who have said they're not going to be running for the next election. The liberals have the most of them with 13. The three this week, uh, it's Adam Vaughn. He represents the Toronto area riding of Spadina Fort York. He was first elected back in 2014 in a by-election. Karen McCrimmon in Canada Carleton. This is a riding west of Ottawa. She won election for the first time back in 2015. And William Amos of Pontiac. Uh, this is a riding that's north of Gatineau in Quebec. He is of the uh, webcam uh, notoriety. Uh, he was also elected for the first time in 2015. He is not running for re-election. So that's three seats that are... Now up for grabs, I guess, for a a different candidate. Spadina, Fort York, and Pontiac, the Liberals won those seats by more than 30 points, so it doesn't seem like they're really up for grabs. But Kanata Carlton, that's a riding that the Conservatives used to hold. Uh, The margin wasn't huge in the last election, and it is a riding that voted for the Ontario PCs, for example. So this is one that might be uh, one that the Conservatives are going to be keeping an eye on. But what's interesting is just how, in a lot of the writings where we've seen uh, incumbents step down, that their replacements have been named very, very quickly. And in some cases, they are some stars, or maybe more accurately, local stars. They're not stars that will galvanize anybody's vote outside of the writings, but in some cases will have a pretty big local impact, which, if this is an election where the liberals are looking to win seats here and there to get themselves to a majority government is not a bad strategy. For example, in Yukon, Larry Bagnell, he uh, has been the MP for a long time, with the exception of of, uh, when he lost in uh, 2011. He is stepping down, and in his place, the Liberals will have Brendan Hanley. He is the Yukon Chief Medical Officer of Health. This is one that I find is, is really a case where there has to be an election coming, because how could you ask someone who has that kind of role to have to step aside if in the end there's not going to be an election in the coming weeks? Um, This is one of the things with star candidates is that once they put their name forward, the reason that they are a star uh, usually means that they have to step aside from that. And if you're asking someone to do that for two years, that's a, a, a pretty big ask. So uh, instead, this would seem to me a sign that, you know, we are just literally hours away from from an election call. Some other cases, it's uh, some provincial level politicians who are stepping up uh, to try to run for federal office for the Liberals. It's here, Nackvi uh, in Ottawa Centre. He's a former Ontario 
Liberal MPP. He is going to be running to replace Catherine McKenna. Michael Coteau in Don Valley East. Uh, he is also an Ontario Liberal. He's running provincially. And the news this week, uh, which was perhaps the most interesting, is the Athabasca Saskatchewan NDP MLA Buckley Belanger. He is going to be running, at least for the Liberal nomination, for the riding of Desnathay Mississippi Churchill River. Let's talk a little bit about this candidacy, because I think it is one that is uh, worth taking a little bit of time on. Uh, Desnathay Mississippi Churchill River, this is the riding that is pretty much half of Saskatchewan, the northern part of the province. This is that riding. It is a majority indigenous riding. There's not that many of them across the country, but this is one of them. And it is often a riding that is pretty close, that there's been a few elections where it is a three-way race where the local candidate makes the real difference. Uh, right now, it's held by Gary Vidal of the Conservatives. Belanger was first elected as a Saskatchewan Liberal uh, in 1995. Believe it or not, there are Saskatchewan Liberals, or at least there once was. Uh, the party has not really been much of a factor. They got less than 0.1% of the vote in the last election in Saskatchewan provincially. Uh, Belanger was elected as a liberal back in 95, but he crossed the floor to, uh, to the NDP in 1998. And uh, he has really just been a fixture of the Saskatchewan uh, Legislative Assembly since then. He's won a majority of the vote in every single election in Athabasca since uh, he first uh, crossed the floor over to the New Democrats. Now, provincially, Athabasca is just the western half of Desnathay, Mississippi, Churchill River, and it doesn't include some of the conservative voting areas in the south of the riding. So that'll be the challenge for Belanger, is that is he going to be able to get support in the rest of the, the riding, the Cumberland riding, uh, the provincially, which is the eastern half of the northern part of Saskatchewan? And can he get enough of the vote in that part of the riding that's further south that tends to vote for the federal conservatives, uh, for the Saskatchewan party at the provincial level. Nevertheless, it's a pretty big name for the liberals in, in that riding. It will attract a lot of the NDP vote. It gives them a shot in that kind of seat. And what's really interesting is you start to see the pieces of a small ball strategy for the liberals. Now, on, the, on my website, uh, therit.ca, I've written about the thing I'm calling the 6% election, which is just... A convenient way to think about the ridings that are up for grabs, that those seats that were won by six points or less in the last election are most likely to make the difference in the next election, and those ridings are enough to give the Liberals a majority, enough to give the Conservatives a plurality. And if the New Democrats are able to win their seats uh, that they lost just by narrow margins last time, they're probably blocking a Liberal majority government, which means they retain the balance of power in the House of Commons. Now, Desnath Amos and Navy Churchill River was won by more than six points, but uh, these kinds of ridings have fewer voters, so it, it takes less of a swing in terms of raw ballots in order to change the outcome. But if, if you see the Liberals piecing together this kind of strategy where they get over 170, a seat or two in Edmonton and Calgary maybe, maybe they pick up a seat like Desnathay, Mississippi, Churchill River in Saskatchewan, uh, they can pick off a few conservatives in Ontario, a few blo block MPs in Quebec, maybe win back a seat or two in Atlantic Canada, Fredericton, of course, they have Janet Atwood across the floor, some seats in British Columbia. You start to see how they can really just kind of get their way up to 170, 175 without a huge wave of support just by picking off these individual seats. Now, that gives them less margin for error, but it is a strategy. And it's interesting to see that these aren't really big name star candidates, but they are important names locally. And uh, that can make a big difference. Moving to provincial politics, I uh, should probably talk about the fact that Brian Pallister, 
Premier of Manitoba has announced that he will not be running for re-election when the province next goes to the polls, scheduled in 2023, and that he will step down as Premier as soon as the Manitoba Progressive Conservatives name his replacement. He became PC leader back in 2012. This was a time when Greg Selinger was the Premier. Um, the NDP and the PCs were usually neck and neck in the polls, but the New Democrats had a pretty good stranglehold on on really the province. They had been in power since 1999 at the time. But it was shortly after Pallister came in that the NDP made some decisions that cost them a lot of support, and Pallister was able to win the 2016 election and become Premier at that point. Uh, Pallister has a long history in, in politics. Uh, federally, he uh, ran for the uh, old PC leadership, and he is actually, at the moment, the currently the longest-serving premier in the country. Justin Trudeau is actually the longest-serving governing leader in Canada, but Pallister is the longest-serving premier. Uh, his, he was having some trouble in Manitoba. We can put it, uh, put it that way. His party hasn't led in a poll since September 2020. Uh, the New Democrats under Wabkanu, they've been moving ahead in the polls. Uh, in the last Angus Reid Institute survey, only 33% of Manitobans approved of his performance as premier. Only Jason Kenney was, was lower than that. And since the, the last polls that we've seen out in Manitoba, things have only really gotten worse uh, over comments that he and, and a new minister made over residential schools. Uh, so Pallister is going to be stepping aside. He will have to be replaced in the next few months, and there'll be a new premier in, in Manitoba who is going to try to repair some of the bridges that uh, might have been burnt by Pallister over the last few months uh, if the PCs are going to avoid going down to defeat in the next election, 2023 could turn out to be a pretty interesting year when it comes to provincial elections in Western Canada. Uh, there'll be a vote in Alberta as well, and the New Democrats there under Rachel Notley are going to be looking to return to power. So it'll be a place to watch. But it also brings up the kind of awkward question for Aaron O'Toole. Does he have any useful friends anymore? Jason Kenney in Alberta, quite unpopular. He campaigned for Andrew Scheer in Ontario in the last campaign. I don't think we'll see Jason Kenney on the hustings anywhere except maybe Alberta, if that, in the next campaign. Pallister, of course, stepping aside and, and not popular. Doug Ford, also uh, problematic for the uh, Conservatives. Uh, he doesn't really have any help at the provincial level. There's no key battlegrounds where he can find a local heavyweight and uh, kind of attach himself to that popularity and that renown. Because Aaron O'Toole remains pretty unpopular in terms of his own personal approval ratings. And uh, still largely unknown. And having someone who people trust and like to endorse you on the campaign trail can help. Uh, but it's not clear who would do that this time. All right, for the new polls, uh, there was two surveys that came out today. Today's Thursday by Abacus Data and the Angus Reid Institute. And uh, I thought they were really interesting surveys, federal polls, uh, pretty big polls. Abacus surveyed 3,000 people between August 6th and August 11th, and Angus Reid Institute surveyed 1,615 people between August 7th and August 10th. So these polls are done at almost exactly the same time. And they, they did find, in terms of the voting intention, some similar numbers. The Liberals are at 37% in Abacus, 36% in the Angus Reid Institute. Uh, so that's I would say where the consensus of the polls has them now, in the in the mid to high 30s. The conservatives in these two surveys, 28% in Abacus, 31% in Angus Reid Institute. That seems like a, a reasonable split. Um, 
Angus Reid Institute has had the conservatives a little bit higher than other pollsters. Abacus has had the conservatives a little bit lower lately. So, you know, somewhere in the high uh, 20s to maybe the low 30s, again, a reasonable place, plausible place to put the conservatives. And the New Democrats, 20% in Abacus, 19% in the Angus Reid Institute. Again, that's where all the polls have been showing things. The bloc was at 5% or 7%, the Greens at 5% or 3%, still really a lot of problems for them. And I just wanted to highlight this because it could become something we're going to be talking about in the next few weeks, is the People's Party, Maxim Bernier. Abacus data puts the People's Party at 4%, whereas the Angus Reid Institute puts them at 3%. 4% is an important number. The debate commissioner uh, has put out their criteria for taking part in the leaders' debates uh, in this federal campaign, and they have some more objective criteria than they did last time. I think the criteria is a lot better than it was in 2019, makes a lot more sense, but they put the bar at 4%. If you're polling at 4%, you can get an invite to the leaders' debate, even if you don't have a seat in the House of Commons. We've been seeing a lot of polls putting the People's Party at around 3 or 4%, so it'll be interesting to see if that means they don't get in. Because if they're averaging 3.5, is that going to be too low? And I know this is getting a little silly, but will the debate commissioner round up? And that could be a a big consideration. But uh, certainly uh, something to watch is where the People's Party is going to be. Now, I wanted to also get a little bit more into detail on these two polls because they had uh, lots of interesting stuff beyond the horse race numbers. And I invite you to go look at those surveys I tweeted them out uh, on Thursday. But the the ones I wanted to focus on in particular, we'll start with Abacus data. What I wanted to focus on here was the question on the thoughts on an early election. We've been talking a lot about how much of an impact it'll have on liberal support if they call an early election, whether they'll get blamed for it. Survey found that most people, the vast majority, really aren't going to care that much, which is not surprising. I, I think people make way too much of whether or not calling an early election is a good or bad idea. It's a good idea if the government wins. It's a bad idea if they lose. I mean, it it just comes down to that. Looking at the survey from the Abacus uh, data, only 17% of Canadians said they would be upset at Mr. Trudeau because an election seems unnecessary. Uh, That was only 13% among liberal supporters, which is not nothing. One in 10 are going to be upset with Trudeau for calling an election, even if they might still vote for him. And 17% of accessible liberals, people who would consider voting liberal but aren't currently voting liberal. 44% said they would prefer that we not have an election, but it isn't something that would affect how you vote, which I think is where most people are. Most people generally don't want to have an election, but it's not going to make or break their decision. 38%, though, said they would be happy to have a chance to cast a ballot and help choose government to take us forward. And that was about a third of both liberal and accessible liberal voters. Uh, so I think this shows that for the vast majority of Canadians, it's not going to be an election issue. Um, and uh, by the time we get past the first few days, I, I wonder if we'll talk about it, except if there's a fourth wave. And this is what I thought was really, really brilliant. Uh, David Coletto, who uh, runs it, uh, Abacus Data, put this question in there because I think it really kind of gets down to it. What if there's a fourth wave? Now, you could argue we're currently in a fourth wave, and it does seem like we might be. Uh, but there's a difference between a fourth wave that is just cresting or a fourth wave that is um, becoming a problem. I, I, I would say that we're not there yet, or at least in the public's mind, we're not there yet. But hey, we could be in five or six weeks. Um, with the question asked, if there is a fourth wave of the pandemic during the election campaign, which of the following best describes how you would react? 20% of Canadians said they would be angry at the Liberals for having an election at this time and decide I couldn't vote for them. So that's not that big much of a difference from the first 
question, which found uh, 17% who said they would not be happy. So, you know, we're talking about more or less the same people. And again, it wasn't a large number of liberal supporters. They could peel off 10% of their own vote, which, of course, is not a good thing. Um, and 20% of accessible liberals would more or less say that, no, okay, well, now I'm not going to vote for them. But again, the vast majority, 66%, said it wouldn't have any effect on how they would vote. And 14% said it would be make them more likely to vote liberal, because they feel they have shown they can do a reasonable job managing the pandemic. So when you put those things together, it really does kind of come out in the wash. There's not a huge difference between those two numbers. So it, it does seem to me that it's not going to be much of an, uh, of an issue, as long as things don't get really bad. But uh, I think this this I think this pretty clearly shows this is not going to be a huge issue, uh, though I have no doubt that it will be uh, an issue that the press gallery and the opposition parties are going to be talking about a lot. Now, in the other survey I wanted to look at for the Angus Reid Institute, again, it, go, it goes down to COVID-19, um, not so much in terms of what impact it'll have on voting intentions, but what impact it will have on the actual results. I talked last week that there could be a bit of a delay between when the votes are counted and when we actually know what the result of the election is. And I had said how the liberals could be maybe trailing the conservatives or the conservatives are just overperforming on election night and that advantage is whittled away. And the numbers from the Angus Street Institute suggest that is a, a, a possibility because they said that among the people who are personally concerned about becoming sick with COVID-19, 45% are uh, liberal supporters and just 23% are conservative supporters. Among those who are not personally concerned about becoming sick, 39% are conservative voters and 26% are liberal voters. So that's a, a pretty significant split. You got a 22-point lead for the liberals between people who are concerned, presumably will vote early, will vote by mail, and a 13-point lead for the conservatives for people who aren't concerned, which suggests they might decide to vote in person. So we could see the same kind of thing that happened in the United States, where uh, the liberals in this case would be catching up as more votes are counted. The numbers, though, do hint that it is possible that the conservatives could be leading in that in-person vote by a big enough margin that they could be winning in a lot of seats, and then the liberals end up catching up with the mail-in ballot. Let's hope that if that does happen, it will be serene and people will not make a lot of hay out of it. Um, we do not need what happened in the United States to happen here. Uh, hopefully, Canadians will have more faith in their election system. Uh, I wanted to look at uh, two other polls, one by uh, the Research Co. Uh, Mario Canseco runs that outfit. Uh, it was a poll just of British Columbians, and I wanted to focus on it because it gives us a rare glimpse of how things break down within a province. So the Research Co. poll found the Liberals leading in British Columbia, the federal Liberals, I should say, with 37%, followed by the NDP at 29%, the Conservatives at 23%, and the Greens at just 6%. Uh, according to the Research Co. poll, the Greens have lost about a fifth of their vote to the NDP since 2019, but the NDP has actually lost about a tenth of theirs to the Liberals. So we're seeing some Greens migrating over to the NDP and some New Democrats migrating over to the Liberals. Uh, when you break it down regionally within British Columbia, the Liberals have a pretty big lead in Metro Vancouver, up 11 points over the NDP. Uh, but in the rest of the province, it is more or less a three-way split. Uh, in the Fraser Valley, Liberals are at 34, NDP 32, Conservatives 25. In Northern BC, Liberals at 29, NDP 28, Conservatives at 30. Southern BC, 
in the interior. 32 for the Liberals, 24 for the NDP, 25 for the Conservatives. Uh, So we could see a lot of interesting splits uh, outside of Metro Vancouver. Vancouver Island, I thought, was really interesting. The Liberals were leading there with 33%, followed by the New Democrats at 32%. The Conservatives were only at 21%, and the Greens were just at 8%. That is really not good for the Green Party. But the fact that the Liberals were leading, even if it was just by point, the fact that they're competitive with the New Democrats, Liberals don't have any seats on Vancouver Island. Uh, If they're suddenly able to win a seat on Vancouver Island, it goes back to that small ball strategy I was talking about before. An extra seat in Vancouver Island? You know, that could be an an important seat. Now, let's go back to the other coast uh, on the east. Now, Nova Scotia has an election that is taking place on Tuesday. Narrative Research put out its poll. They're a Halifax-based polling firm. They were in the field July 27th, August 9th, so they're in the field for almost two weeks. Uh, They surveyed 540 people, which isn't a huge amount, and when you take out the undecideds, uh, the number of uh, decided voters is quite small. So, you know, there is a big, bigger margin of error on these kinds of numbers. But the Liberals were leading in the poll, the Nova Scotia Liberals, with 40%, followed by the PCs at 31%, the New Democrats at 27%, and the Greens at 2%. Since May, when Narrative last put out a poll, the Liberals have dropped 12 points. Uh, the PCs have picked up 7, the NDP has picked up 8. So there is some shifts there. Uh, the Liberals are still leading enough that they could win a majority government, but... The regional breaks that uh, narrative had suggest the NDP and the Liberals are tied in Halifax, uh, which could be a a real battleground between the two parties. In the rest of Nova Scotia, the mainland, uh, the Liberals were narrowly ahead of the PCs, and that's going to be, you know, really distributed across that area. You know, the PCs are stronger in the Pic 2 area, Cumberland, the Liberals are are stronger in, uh, you know, the South Shore and the Annapolis Valley. Uh, In Cape Breton, sample was tiny in Cape Breton, so it's really hard to take much out of it. But it was more or less a three-way race that with the Conservatives, the Liberals, and the NDP all pretty competitive. And I think that also kind of aligns with how the seats are breaking down. The NDP does have a few seats where they're uh, in contention. The Liberals could make a, a, a few gains. The Conservatives have some support there. It really puts the result of the, the election a little bit into question. It's no longer as much of a Liberal landslide as that the Liberals need to hold off the NDP in Halifax. And win their seats in the mainland and maybe make a couple gains if they can in Cape Breton. But it's not nearly as comfortable as maybe it was before. Uh, Tim Houston seems to have had the biggest impact on the campaign. His personal numbers in terms of who Nova Scotians prefer as premier has jumped nine points to 24%. Uh, He's still behind Ian Rankin, who's at 34%, but that's down seven points. Gary Burrell, the NDP leader, is at 17 points. He's up four points and he's the only one who's actually been around for a previous campaign so maybe it's not surprising that Nova Scotians have already decided on him but a lot of them haven't decided on the election 35 percent are undecided that's a big 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 number and uh, it really puts into question what could happen between now and election day so we'll be keeping a close eye on it that's for sure Questions and answers. Uh, First one comes from Nicholas Clark. He's a subscriber to the writ.ca. He left a comment on the website. As I've said before, subscribers will have an inside track on getting the questions answered. Uh, I thought this was a really interesting question, and I wanted to kind of break it down and take uh, some time to look into it. So the question was, when does Canada redraw its federal riding boundaries? Where would these new ridings be? Is there any party or parties in particular that you think will benefit from these new ridings? So every 10 years, the electoral map is redrawn. The last 
uh, map was redrawn based on the 2011 census, and the new boundaries were established in 2013 and were applied at the 2015 election. So we can expect that same kind of timeline, that it will be based on the uh, census that was taken this year. And probably in a couple more years, um, the boundaries will be set and we'll have them probably for the next election, assuming that uh, the next election takes place late enough in 2023 to uh, use the new boundaries or after that. Now, I I would need to do a more in-depth study of this, but I I did find on the Statistics Canada website, it's estimates of population changes since 2011. And when you look at where the population has grown, you see where the ridings are most likely going to be added. Uh, Toronto, the CMA in Toronto, a census metropolitan area has had the biggest growth at nearly 800,000 people. Now, if ridings have about 100,000 people, this means that Toronto's probably going to be getting an extra seven to eight ridings. And that's the wider Toronto. So that includes Mississauga, Brampton, places like that. Uh, Montreal has grown, uh, and Vancouver as well, just under 400,000. Calgary and Edmonton grew by over 300, just under 300,000, I should say. And Ottawa and Winnipeg were over 100,000. Now, these are all urban areas, not surprisingly. Um, and that would probably help the Liberals. If we assume that uh, Toronto, Montreal, and Ottawa are friendly to the Liberals, then that's maybe 10 or 11 seats in those areas that the Liberals will have a better chance of winning. Montreal, it depends on where it are. If they're in the outskirts on the, uh, you know, in the north or south shore of Montreal, that could actually help the block a little bit. But in those three cities that tend to vote for the Liberals, somewhere around 10 or 11 seats might be added. So that would be a win in the Liberal column. Uh, There might be an extra four seats or so, four or five seats that could be added in Calgary and Edmonton. That is usually better territory for the Conservatives. So there are some chances that they could win a few extra seats there. And then an extra, you know, four or five seats in the Vancouver and Winnipeg area. I would say that's more of a contested area. Uh, where all three parties have chances to win seats in Vancouver and Winnipeg. So on the balance, assuming that the voting patterns don't change significantly, the Liberals have the most to gain from the new boundaries being drawn because it's going to be in cities where they are doing well. But there are some seats that will be added to the map that will be ones that the Conservatives, the New Democrats, and the Bloc will be competitive in. Uh, Next question uh, was from Connor Rosine. This is more of a provincial question. I, I wanted to get to it. Do we have any indication of the primary cause of the declining popularity of Jason Kenney, Alberta Premier? Is it a base that's turned on him for having too harsh of lockdown measures or swing voters leaving due to lockdown measures being too lax? It's not a fun answer, but the answer is actually probably both. Back in June, the Angus Reid Institute put out a poll and it found that there was more or less the same number of people in Alberta saying that the COVID-19 restrictions and measures were Uh, too far and not far enough. So it was pretty much an even split between those who say that Kenny had put in things that were too much and he had put in things that weren't nearly enough. And Alberta was really the only province where you saw that kind of even split between too far, not far enough, and also so few people saying just right. So Kenny was not really pleasing anybody. He was upsetting those who thought COVID-19 restrictions should be laxer, and he was upsetting people who thought that he needs to take it more seriously. Very few people in Alberta were saying that he was taking the right approach. And this is being reflected in the change in voting intentions. Uh, the most recent Leger poll 
uh, which I talked about on a previous podcast, had the UCP, Jason Kenney's party, at 34%, which is down about 20 points since the 2019 election. The NDP was up about 12 points to 45%. So the NDP is gaining a lot of that disaffected UCP vote. So probably people living in Calgary, Edmonton, some of the smaller cities, Lethbridge, Red Deer, places like that, uh, who thought that Kenny wasn't doing enough on COVID and they're going over to the NDP. But at the same time, that poll had the Wild Rose Independence Party at 8%. But that's 8% of the vote that would otherwise have gone to the Conservatives. Uh, that is really what's the challenge for Jason Kenney is that he is losing people on both sides. Maybe people in the past who voted more for the PCs and uh, are now drifting over to the New Democrats and people who used to vote for the Wild Rose Party that are going back to that party, even if it has become uh, more radical and uh, supporting separation for Alberta. So that's a big challenge for Jason Kenney. The last question, uh, this was coming from Twitter, from the account at Colty Smother, or potentially from at KDRNN. I don't know, there was some controversy in the Twitter verse about who asked this question. Anyway, the question was, whoever originally started it, was how do people who tell pollsters they're undecided during the campaign tend to break on election day? Do they tend not to vote? Do they gravitate towards the incumbent, etc.? As it is really for a lot of these kinds of questions, first of all, it's a difficult question, one that pollsters have grappled with, with varying as varying levels of success. And the real answer is that it really depends on the circumstance. The conventional wisdom is that undecideds will either not vote or they will break like the decideds do. So most pollsters just leave it as it is. They do not try to reassign the undecided voters in any way that's different from how decided voters are going to vote. This is, in my view, the smartest approach. You don't want to add another element of error to your poll by trying to guess at what the undecideds are going to do. Just leave them out, and in most cases, they will more or less do what the, the decided voters are doing. But it really does depend on the campaign. And we've seen lots of different campaigns where, uh, for example, it has been very advantageous for the incumbent. The British Columbia election in 2013, the ones that the polls missed, one of the reasons, there's multiple reasons, but one of the reasons is that it does seem like undecided voters uh, drifted over to the Liberals, the incumbent government of Christy Clark. Uh, but sometimes they also break for the challenger. In Quebec in 2018, the CAQ, François Legault, was leading relatively narrowly over Philippe Criard and the Liberals. Um, but in the end, he won by a huge margin. And in part, it's because a lot of those undecideds ended up going for the CAQ. So in that case, it wasn't that they went for the incumbent, it's that they went for the challenger. They got on board that bus. Uh, in referendum polling in Quebec, this is a big question. It is generally thought that the undecided vote for sovereignty, for example, will break pretty strongly to the no uh, the safer option, really. And you saw that also in the Scottish referendum that the polls were showing was a very close race. And in the end, the uh, the union vote um, came out on election day, in part because those undecideds might have decided that mm, if I'm not sure, I'm probably not going to take the riskier option. It's a good time to remind you that in that narrative research poll, 35% of Nova Scotians said they were undecided. How are they going to break? If the undecideds broke not 40-31 for the Liberals, but instead maybe 40-25 for the PCs, that would be enough for the PCs to win the popular vote. It can have a big impact. And when the polls are off, it might often be because of how undecideds decided to vote on election day. And um, there's really no way to guess at that. And whenever pollsters have tried to guess, at least in Canada, 
they have tended to do worse. It's better to report what's actually verifiable, what the decided voters are going to do, and just understand the caveat that the undecideds could make a big impact on the results. Finally, in our Every Election Project section, my look at past Canadian elections going back to 1867. Today, we're going back 77 years ago this week to the Quebec provincial election of August 8, 1944. Now, shockingly, this was actually the first Quebec election in which women could vote. Quebec was the last to allow women to vote, and even this move, as late as it was, was opposed by some elements in the Catholic Church in Quebec and by the leader of the opposition. The Liberals at the time were under Adelaide Godbout, who had become premier ahead of the 1936 election, which the Liberals lost. Uh, but he was back in office in 1939. By 1944, the Quebec Liberals had governed the province for all but three of the previous 47 years. The Union Nationale was under Maurice Duplessis. He had been in opposition since being defeated in that 1939 election, because he had won in 1936 to run Quebec for a few years. He had called an election, an early election in 1939, over Canada's participation in the Second World War. He was opposed to it, or at least opposed to it being very vigorously uh, prosecuted. The federal liberals under Mackenzie King, they really pulled out all the stops to defeat uh, Maurice Duplessis in 1939, and they were successful. Duplessis was defeated, and Godbout and the Liberals returned to power. Uh, Duplessis, he was a heavy drinker at the time, and he sobered up in the interim uh, to try to get back on his game. There's some interesting stories about Maurice Duplessis and Mitch Hepburn in the uh, 1930s. And uh, Anyway, in addition to the Liberals and the Union Nationale, uh, there were some other parties that were on the field. There was the Bloc Populaire. This was under André Laurendeau. He was opposed to conscription. This was a big issue in the Second World War, just as it was in the First World War. And, you know, the Bloc Populaire sounds a bit like the Bloc Québécois. It's, I don't think it's much of a coincidence that that history around that name is there. There's also the CCF in this campaign under uh, Romeo Joseph Lamoureux. CCF was never much of a big factor in Quebec, but they were a, a bit more of a player in this election. Now, the Liberals had been in power since 1939, but they were weakened by the federal government's change of approach on conscription. Uh, King had promised that there wouldn't be conscription, famously saying conscription if necessary, but not necessarily conscription. But he released himself from that pledge in 1942 in a plebiscite that was widely opposed in Quebec, but enough voters in the rest of the country voted to release King from his no conscription pledge. And uh, this was an issue in Quebec. So the Provincial liberals were weakened by that. They were also weakened by the departure of a large number of cabinet ministers and uh, some internal divisions. It gave the impression that the provincial party was expecting a rough election. In other ways, though, the liberals were in a strong position. The economy in Quebec had rebounded from the depression of the 1930s, and the government was in surplus. Godbout's government was generally seen to be pretty well run and progressive. But that progressive platform angered a lot of the clergy in Quebec, as well as the conservative elements in the province. The Union Nationale, it ran on a nationalist conservative platform and against the liberals, ceding provincial autonomy to the federal government. And the Union Nationale also benefited from the anti-conscription mood in Quebec and uh, really riled up opinion on those kinds of issues. Duplessis and Laurendeau, they were successful in making the campaign about the war and about Quebec's autonomy. 
Gudbu, as hard as he tried, he couldn't make it about his administrative record. If it had been an election on how well the Liberals had governed the province between 1939 and 1944, they might have had much more of a shot of winning it. Instead, it became a a campaign about issues that the Liberals were really, really weak on because of their ties to the federal government. When the votes were counted, the Union Nationale came to power. They won 48 seats. This was an increase of 33 seats from the 1939 election. The Liberals reduced by 33 seats. They uh, won just 37. The Bloc Populaire, they were able to take four seats. The CCF, they won a single seat, and there was an independent elected as well. The Liberals actually won the popular vote. They took 39% of the vote. That was down 15 points from the previous election. Uh, but it, they finished a point ahead with the Union Nationale that took 38%, the Bloc Populaire took 14%, and the CCF captured 3% of the vote. The Liberals winning the popular vote but losing the election is something that uh, has happened before in Quebec, and it's in part because of the Liberal strength in Anglophone areas. They run up the numbers there, they still do it, but they did it in 1944. They had strength in urban areas, in Anglophone areas. They were largely supported by the labor movement, which was no friend to Maurice Duplessis. Uh, Liberals won seats in Montreal, Quebec City, and scattered throughout the province. It was actually a relatively close election. But the Union Nationale, they won the seats where uh, it was rural areas, francophone areas. They were strong in central Quebec and eastern Quebec. The CCF, uh, interestingly, they won Ray-Noranda, which is in uh, Abitibi-Temiskaming. Interestingly, this is where the left-wing Quebec Solidaire won a surprise seat 74 years later in the 2018 provincial election. So there is that kind of history in the riding of Ray Noranda. Uh, it would actually be the only seat the CCF or the Social Democratic Party, as it later became known, would ever win in a general election. The Bloc Populaire, despite winning four seats, uh, they would fade away after the war. The issue of conscription was gone, uh, so the party really didn't have much reason to exist, and it wouldn't contest the 1948 election. Gudbu would, however, contest that election. He would stay as leader of the party until 1950 after losing another election. Now, Duplessis, who would be known simply as Le Chef, and the Union Nationale would continue to govern Quebec until Duplessis' death in 1959 and the defeat of the Union Nationale by the Liberals in 1960. The Duplessis era is called by some La Grande Noirceur, or the Great Darkness, because of the autocratic control Duplessis and the Catholic Church had over the province, uh, something that contributed to the eruption of the Quiet Revolution in the 1960s. I'm not sure if you're hearing my cat. She is very adamant that she wants to join the podcast. And that's it for the podcast this week. Thanks to everyone who has subscribed to the writ.ca. Over the course of the coming campaign, subscribers will get some bonus podcast episodes, so keep an eye out for that. Also, with the writ drop coming any day now and the Nova Scotia election happening on Tuesday, keep another eye on your inbox and my Twitter feed uh, for some special coverage. Have a good weekend or election call, and uh, thanks for listening.